Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast. And joining me today, he is the man who played the role of Calculator in The Brave Little Toaster Goes to Mars, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I am doing very good. You know, David... Uh... <laughs> I bet you thought I wouldn't have a story about Calculator, but I do have a story about Calculator and Brave Little Toaster going to Mars in that a lot of times when when actors first start working, they want to get recognized for something. And of course, Calculator was just a voice part, but I was standing in line at a movie theater at Westwood, and the guy in front of me turned around and said, excuse me. Are you the voice of Calculator and Brave Little Toaster Goes to Mars? And it was one of my first uh, celebrity sightings. I was extremely proud of that. Well, congratulations, sir. I, I think <laughs> right under Ned Ryerson and Sammy Jenkins, Calculator from Brave Little Toaster Goes to Mars. It's got to be up there now. Well, let me, let me tell you, uh, I had an act three to the Calculator story is that a few weeks ago at our synagogue, they were having a sale throwing out all the things that they didn't want anymore and there in fact was a, a thing called a v, vhs it's a tape that ex- these kind this format existed before dvds whoa uh, is it like those gigantic like cassette tapes is that what it's, it's like? like it's like those old computers that used to take up a whole room yeah, and they had yeah. like yeah like the tape recorder spinning nice. in the background nice. but they were selling the brave little toaster goes to mars and i asked how much would it cost just to to buy that tape? And she said, well, the entire box is 50 cents yeah, yeah, with like 20 tapes in it. I said, well, just the Brave Little Toaster. She says, oh, it's worth nothing. You can, you can have it for free. <laughs> Ouch. That's, that's that hurts, harsh. David. Yeah. There's the way of all flesh. Yeah. Unless people, th- lest people think that, you know, Stephen's role of calculator was uh, frivolous, as it were, in this, in this film, he was also joined by characters such as Fawcett, and hearing aid. So, definitely. And one of the main reasons I did Brave Little Toaster Goes to Mars is that my little baby Robert, my tiny little kid who's now 21 years of age, loved vacuum cleaners. And Brave Little Toaster Goes to Mars was one of the few children's scripts that had a main part, which was the vacuum cleaner. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, this, I did it for him. Uh, this has actually turned in much more interesting than I thought it would. So, thank you for sharing <laughs> that, Stephen. But speaking of things that are interesting, you know, today is the release date, I believe, of Christopher Nolan's Inception. Wow. And uh, the movie is about a guy who goes into dreams and steals things. And, you know, Stephen, you've been thinking about dreams recently, haven't you? I have been thinking about dreams a great deal, David. I I, I have a lot of mixed feelings on dreams, uh, David. I I know that... um, People tend to put a lot of weight on what they dream, and the difficulty, of course, is that it's very hard to know what a dream is really saying. <laughs> and I think maybe Christopher Nolan, yeah, I think that could be hard to know what he's saying in that dream, too. Over the years, I've realized that dreams fall, for me, into two main categories. The most frequent dream I've had by far is that I'm trying to pack my clothes for a trip, and I can't find my socks or my belt and when I do, I can't find my suitcase. And when I find my suitcase, I'm in the wrong country. That could be like Christopher Nolan's dream. 
Uh, the second dream I have in order of frequency is that I'm in the wrong country looking for a bathroom and suddenly I find my suitcase. But hmm, on two occasions, I have had very strange dreams that seem to be trying to instruct me about life. And I remembered these dreams because of their rarity and because of their similarity to Beatles songs. Now, the first dream I talked about already, uh, it happened in Buffalo, and Grandmother Tobolowsky came back from the beyond and told me that all life was falling up. And my friend Bob was very impressed with this bit of wisdom, and one morning we were playing Scrabble and drinking corn liquor, and he said, that thing your grandma told you, it's the truth, bro. We're all falling up, if we're lucky. Well, it was very hard for me at the time to see my life as falling up. I felt like my life was a Cobb salad, or worse, a Cobb salad mixed. In the six-month period of time, I had broken up with Beth, who had been my girlfriend for 15 years. I also feared I had put an end to my career, because over the last six years, I had almost exclusively acted or directed Beth's plays. I moved out of the place I knew as home. I left behind almost all my earthly possessions, including my dear dog, the pooch, and moved into an unfurnished rental with a Japanese tub and a bidet. And I'll admit that once I used the bidet when I was living there, bringing the grand total of times I've used a bidet in my lifetime to twice. The first time being by accident on my first trip to Europe when I was 19. I thought it was a toilet. I peed into it, and when I turned the faucet to flush, I inadvertently washed the ceiling. I had bought a new stereo. I had bought a futon to sleep on and my first rock and roll CD, a collection of Motown classics in foreign languages, which turned out to be an interesting life lesson in the importance of reading fine print. I was determined to start a new relationship with my best friend, Anne. We began living together with her cat, the hopelessly insane Coco, and we moved into our current home overlooking the Hollywood Bowl. It was a home on stilts whose backyard was a 100-foot vertical drop, a home with trees in the living room, a home with white walls that reflected the changing sky. And to make this strange world appear familiar was the completely unexpected return of my dog, the pooch. This was the new reality for sleeping on a futon. At the time Anne and I moved into this house, the house on stilts, I had my second memorable dream. My friend Didi appeared to me in this dream. Now, in the waking world, Didi was a hippie by avocation. She could make homemade jam and milk a goat at the same time. But in my dream, she came to me and said, Stephen, you are not living in reality. And I said, I'm not Didi? And she said, no. I said, should I plant a garden, Didi? Didi said, no, that's not reality. You may think it is, but it's not. Stephen, to live in reality, you have to let your garden go to seed, plant those seeds, and then whatever you grow will be real. Wow. Throughout history, the more chaotic the times, the more people have relied on dreams for guidance, and I was no different. I was looking for anything to use as a handrail, and this dream became my lantern. If I could only figure out what it meant, the garden could certainly have been my relationship. 
And letting it go to seed could have meant I should take time to establish a new world. Was it that I was at the beginning of something new? Was I finishing something old? I had no idea. All I knew was today. And what was right in front of me, that was my real world. Once you believe you're living in the real world, you start making rules to govern it. Anne made one of the first rules we had as a couple. In bed, there had to be a human in the middle. This rule was particularly hard on the pooch. Anyone who doubts the intelligence of animals should watch the mythical stop-motion video of the pooch wiggling into the middle of the futon every night and then slowly but surely moving the humans to the perimeter. There was more than one night when I was happy the futon was low to the ground because the pooch would give me one final kick and land me on the floor. When your new reality is the world of change, you naturally search for islands of stability for comfort. And it's interesting what Anne and I needed to feel safe and grounded. And the answer was not furniture or clothes or cars. The answer was not money. None of those things were a big factor. We lived just fine with very little. Comfort was found in unexpected places, in the intangibles. Music was important. Animals helped a lot, believe it or not. There was our mutual passion of acting. There was the smell of food cooking in the kitchen. And then, very surprisingly, gardening. Huh. I didn't know if it was the good memories of meeting Anne in the moonlight amongst the tomato plants a year before, but there was a big desire to grow something new. And this was tougher than it sounds because we didn't have any ground. Anne decided we could have a garden on our stone patio using pots. I wasn't sure how successful we would be, but then I thought of Dee Dee and the dream of a garden going to seed. Maybe this was the sign. So I started hauling clay pots and dirt up the hill. We bought trowels and seedlings, and before we knew it, our patio was brimming with new life. Coco and the pooch were fascinated by our efforts. In the morning, Anne would fix a pot of tea and would start the day watering and pruning. Coco would sit regally, supervising all the labor. If it wasn't for that dream and the improbable decision of gardening on stone, Anne and I would not have been the beneficiary of the first miracle on Whitley Terrace. It was early Sunday morning. The pooch and Coco were asleep inside. Anne and I had finished watering 30 different pots and pinching back basils. We decided to take a break and drink some tea. I sat facing Anne, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw something move. I couldn't get a fix on it at first. It was something dark, something shadowy, there beneath the stool where Anne was sitting, about eight feet away from me. Yeah, and there it was again, movement on the ground. And oh my God, it was a head, a living head. I caught Anne's eye, and we both became very aware that something was coming up from the ground. We froze. It was an animal. The head came out of the hole in the paving stone and started looking around. It appeared the coast was clear, and then with a mighty heave, a beast started pulling itself out of this small hole in our patio. A black furry body kept coming out and out and out of the hole, and then the broad white stripe. It was an adult skunk. That got our full attention. We didn't move. We didn't breathe. She finally pulled herself completely out of the hole, shook her amazingly bushy tail, 
She walked out from under Anne and stood up on her hind legs and sniffed. And either <laughs> the wind was blowing in a lucky direction for us or the scent of flowers and vegetables overwhelmed her. But the skunk had no idea we were sitting in her midst. She shook her beautiful coat and waddled through the garden and calmly stepped through the front gate and waddled down the street. Anne and I were still frozen, but internally exploding from this close encounter. As soon as we felt the coast was clear, we ran inside. We started screaming. The pooch woke up, joined us in the chaos with barks and jumps, running around in circles until it was too much for her. And she did what she always did when she had sensory overload. She lay on her back with her feet in the air. I got down, rubbed the pooch's belly, and tried to tell her what a skunk was. And if she knew what was good for her, stay away from this one. That fall was the first time we encountered our skunk. As winter approached, we crossed another bridge together. Our first Christmas. It's funny how new relationships are always ambushed by old traditions. Christmas means a lot of different things to different people. And the odds are that it isn't one of the things you discuss when you're falling in love. So do you say, hey, do you believe in Santa Claus or Midnight Mass? We started simply. Anne and I set up our first Christmas tree together in the living room with our other trees. This gave us another unexpected source of comfort. I understand ritual has become the latest whipping boy of our increasingly barren society. It's criticized as being empty and meaningless. But the critics miss the point. Almost every ritual, religious or not, that gives us comfort has no meaning. Whether it's blowing out birthday candles or throwing out the first pitch or tossing out a bridal bouquet to the ladies-in-waiting or dragging a sawed-off tree into your home, it is all fundamentally meaningless. The error the critics make is in mistaking the form for the meaning. Ritual is only the glass. We provide the contents. To say that a certain ritual is meaningless is not a comment on the ritual but in our inability to fill it. I was Jewish. Anne was an indescribable concoction of Beowulf, Christianity, and Betty Crocker. For us, the Christmas tree was not religious, but it was a symbol full of hope and joy, and it smelled good, and it gave Anne an excuse to make Christmas cookies. She would make them in all shapes and sizes based on all the different things in our life. She made a fish cookie, from the camping trip we took by the ocean and I caught a fish for breakfast. She made a pooch cookie and a cocoa cookie. And she made a skunk cookie. Anne had no shortage of energy in filling our glass of ritual with something humorous. We discovered more rituals together. One of the realities of having the pooch in no yard was the ritual of the dog walk. More than the Eucharist, or the confessional, or singing 99 bottles of beer on the wall on a bus ride, the dog walk is the extreme test of the human being to fill ritual with meaningful content. Pooch loved her walks. Maybe it was the memory of our first walk in the Hollywood Hills that seemed to give her a new lease on life. Or maybe she was just a born explorer, but a random move in the kitchen toward the leash made the pooch do three-foot vertical leaps of joy. And Coco, never being one to be left out, always walked with us. Three times a day, the gang of four explored the neighborhood. 
We always thought the walks would be an opportunity to meet our neighbors or to see local wildlife, but in reality, it was mainly useful for meeting other dog walkers. We, we never had a dog to walk before, but we quickly learned the code of the dog walker. Upon seeing another walker, we would stop and say our hellos to the human and the dog, and the dog hello is always done in a funny voice, followed by the issuing of an insincere compliment like, Oh, aren't you beautiful? Oh, look at you, what a cute fella. I would always find this amusing because when anybody saw the pooch, they were at a loss for words. The pooch's strong suit was enthusiasm, not looks. On her best day, she could be generously described as grotesque. People would see (laughs) the visage of the pooch and say something nondescript like, Oh my goodness, look at you. Look at you. Or something like, Look at you. You look like a mop, (laughs) don't you? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Then, strangely, the conversation would turn to the famous people who lived in our neighborhood. One walker pointed out at a certain point of the street that that house used to belong to Jane Fonda. And a week later, another dog walker pointed to another house on the street saying, that's where Whitney Houston used to live. I had no way of knowing if such things were true, but it didn't matter. I quickly became very enamored of our neighborhood. I felt positively special now that I thought that all these famous people had once lived on our block. Of course, if I thought about it for a few seconds, I would have realized that it just meant that they moved to a better area. It became a real-world example of the power of myth and how quickly it can work, making it particularly dangerous. The walks also revealed local villains. At the end of our street was a pit bull, rottweiler, cerebus dog from hell mix that would terrorize us whenever we were on the home stretch. It would ferociously jump at the gate, barking and snapping its jaws. The pooch was terrified for her life, and I didn't blame her. She would start whimpering if we headed to that loop of the neighborhood. If we got within two houses, she would pull up her legs like they were landing gear, effectively turning her into a shaggy gray potato, and I would have to drag her past the monster. The terrors came to a head on one of our midnight walks. Anne was holding the leash. We were tired. We decided we would just make it a short pit stop and head back to bed. Street was black, illuminated by eerie pools of light from the occasional street lamps. We rounded the corner and entered an island of light, and Coco stopped, hissed, and arched her back. At first, I just chalked it up to another Vietnam flashback. But then she turned tail and took off into the night. I was worried about her for about five seconds, until I heard the sound of distant snarling. I looked up, and bounding down the street toward us in the moonlight was Serapis, the dog from hell. It had gotten loose somehow and was galloping toward us at full speed. The pooch keeled over a la possum in a parasympathetic response, figuring she would rather die in a reclining position. I was looking for a place to run when Anne handed me the leash and said in a voice two octaves lower than anything I had ever heard except in an exorcist movie, Hold this! I took the leash, and Anne stepped in front of us to meet the oncoming monster. She pointed at the oncoming dog, and when it got within ten feet of us, she roared, You! Go! Home! 
It was like a scene from Poltergeist. The dog almost fell backwards. It stopped in its tracks. Anne stepped forward again, pointed her evil finger at the beast, and said, You are bad. Go! The dog's eyes widened for a brief second as if he mistook Anne for the lord of the underworld. He turned and ran back into the blackness as fast as he appeared. Pooch and I were amazed. We stood motionless for a second as we caught our breath and waited for our heart rates to go beneath 200 beats per minute. She looked back at me and said, Give me the leash. I obeyed. Anne turned to the pooch and said, Do your business. Pooch did. Anne said, Let's go. Pooch and I headed home. Anne looked out at the night and muttered, I can't stand bullies. We headed back, and I wondered, who was this person living with me? And if she was the same shy girl that used to talk about the constellations and worry about if there was too much sparkle on the Christmas cookies. But that night, in bed, when she said she needed a kiss, she got one. That Christmas, we visited Dee Dee and Bruce in Topanga Canyon for turkey dinner and spiced wine and a sharing of holiday cheer. I told Dee Dee about her appearance in my dreams, and she told me straight up that wasn't her. And I had to take responsibility for my own unconsciousness. And then she asked me what she did in the dream, and I told her about her suggestion that I plant seeds from my own garden. Dee Dee thought about it, sagely nodded her head, and approved of the advice. And she said I could keep dreaming about her if I used her appearance responsibly. One of the interesting facets of Christmas in Topanga was that rather than give gifts to one another, we had the custom of going around the room and sharing an idea. And I've always been a science buff. And in a strange triangulation with my dream of Dee Dee in the garden, this year, the idea I had was a new scientific discovery I just read about. Physicists had announced they were working on something called virtual reality. Yeah, you could put on a helmet that fed your brain certain sights and sounds that made you think you were in a completely different existence. This blew everyone's mind. Joe asked me what the practical application of this would be. I drew a blank. We were still a couple decades away from good video games. But it did start me thinking about how closely my life was following the footprints of virtual reality. The sights and sounds of my world had completely changed, and the net result was a critical lack of certainty. You see, I had always been a person who had been certain of things. Right or wrong, it didn't matter. I was certain. I was certain I wanted to be an actor. I was certain I was in love with Claire Richards in second grade. And I was also certain that I, the monster, lived under my bed and certain that being in the Dangerous Animals Club was a good idea. There's something solid about the feeling of certainty. It's very appealing. It cuts down on your guesswork, but it's easy to mistake for reality. 
Reality comes from truthful observation. Certainty comes from a belief system. Certainty can be immune from reason or knowledge handed to you by your own two eyes and ears. In a way, certainty is a form of living in the past, not what you've experienced in the past, but what you decided was true in the past. For example, someone who says, I've always been unlucky. That's certainty speaking, not reality. And don't get me wrong, living in certainty is vital at times. It's the essence of faith. It helps us see in the dark. It's the little voice that says, if we just get to the top of the next mountain, we'll be fine. But living stubbornly in the realm of certainty can be a dangerous thing. This is why I was worrying after that Christmas dinner about the invention of virtual reality. It seemed to play with the very tools that enabled us to tell the difference between day and night. From that night on, I started seeing the war that is fought daily between certainty and reality. An example. I got a phone call from a woman who I knew who lived in Arizona who came to L.A. occasionally to give massages. She told me she was in town and had to meet with me right away. She said I had to drive out to the chicken farm where she was staying so we could speak in private. Ooh, that word, private. My alarm bells went off. I, sa I said, why don't we just talk on the phone? And she said she couldn't talk about it on the phone. It wasn't safe. Second alarm bells went off. I said, well, if you don't want to talk about it on the phone, you're going to have to at least drive out to my house. I'm not going to schlep. Take it or leave it. She took it. She came over and gestured that she couldn't come inside. That may not be safe. I was confused, but I was still going with the flow. And I said, okay. She said that what she had to tell me could put me in grave jeopardy. I stared at her. And just a side note here, am I the only person who runs into people who tell them things that put them in grave jeopardy? At this point, I was at least happy I didn't have to schlep. I said, let's walk and talk. We started around the block. She told me she had just found out that the aliens had already landed, and it was only a matter of time before the final battle for the control of Earth began and our government was behind it. At this point, I was so glad I didn't drive out to that chicken farm. I said, Mary, you don't have to worry about this. The aliens are not here, and they're not working with the government. And she told me that's what she thought, too, but she has seen pictures of them. And apparently, there were two types of aliens. There's a good kind that look very much like E.T., and a bad kind that look very much like the alien in Alien. And I told her a lot of people have seen these same pictures at a place called a movie theater. And I asked her if when she saw these pictures, she happened to be eating popcorn. She said she wasn't joking. The government had built an alien landing base in New Mexico and had been working with them for the last 30 years. I told her that was impossible. She asked me why. I told her because people can't keep secrets, especially about aliens. And even if people could, they had girlfriends and personal assistants who couldn't. I told her, please, not to worry. Mary looked at me as if she was about to laugh or about to cry. She was wanting to believe me so badly, but her certainty would not allow her to let it go. I asked her if what she said was true, 
why was the government in on this? What would be the advantage of working with the aliens? She said simply, money. I said, okay. Assuming that the government is working with the aliens on some money-making venture, how would that affect you? She said she wasn't going to stick around to find out. Her boyfriend, Miles, was building a time machine. She was going to escape into the future. I didn't even want to make her despair that if the first part of her news was true and the aliens were taking over, they would be (laughs) waiting for her in the future, and she and Miles should start working on going back into the past, hopefully sometime after the invention of air conditioning. Pause. This story illustrates the balance between certainty and reality, and I know Mary is an extreme example. She was absolutely certain that something terrible was happening in New Mexico, and this was years before Wild Hogs was made. We can all sit back and say she was delusional, but how many times do we grab onto elements in our lives that are as equally baseless as poor Mary's story? And how many times do we carry a banner into battle with absolute certainty that has no more substance than Miles' time machine? It was a real-world example of virtual reality without the helmet. I have mentioned that when I broke up with Beth, something broke inside of me. It was the part of my brain that handled certainty. And this had the strangest effect on my daily life. I lost track of the simplest things I preferred— like the kind of salad dressing I liked, or what was my favorite kind of beer, or even if I smoked cigarettes or not. Yes, I found myself going into a smoke shop, buying loose-leaf tobacco and rolling papers. One morning, I decided I was a fisherman, and I bought an $800 rod and reel. It also affected my core, like God, government, morality. But my personal confusions created the most havoc in my relationship with Anne. Relationships are the true time machine in that they exist in the past, present, and future at the same time. Anne sensed something was wrong, and most of the time she didn't know if I was coming or going, and it all bizarrely played out in a scene brought about by none other than the pooch. I woke up one morning with the gray balls of fur in the middle of the bed. And was upset. She said I was lax in keeping the human in the middle of the bed rule. I told her that the pooch always waits until I'm unconscious before she makes her move. But I think the truth was, I was loath to discipline the pooch because of her troubled past. If I felt the pooch sidle in next to me, I would turn a blind eye. Anne was not in the mood to take this advance from another woman lightly, and we got into a strangely charged fight. She said, why do you let her do that? I said, do what? She said, come in between us like that. I said, the pooch likes the middle of the bed. Anne said, you let her come in between us. Side note, at this point in real time, I knew Anne was right, but in my own confusion over my position, I was so embarrassed that I continued on in a losing effort. I said, Anne, the pooch is a dog and a very disadvantaged dog. She was sick. She may even be retarded. Anne said, don't go there. I'm not buying it. You adore her, and you and I both know what the problem is. And I I said, what? Anne said, she's in love with you. I said, what? 
Anne said, you know I'm right. Side note, at this point, I knew Anne was right. I said, Anne, you're crazy. She's a dog. But I will do something to make this better. I promise I don't want to have a fight over a dog. Anne said, we're not having a fight over a dog. We're having a fight over keeping something between us, something you love. And I'm trying to get as close to you as I can, but you won't let me in. And there it was. Reality. Reality is very different from certainty. It may be akin to Bob and the newspaper in the doorway in his explanation of the difference between truth and honesty. But the net result was I knew I needed to rise to Anne's game and to do something to redirect this deep, unending love with the pooch. So I went to the pet store. I found a large, plush dog bed. I knew it was like buying a diamond ring for your mistress right before you tell her you're leaving. But the first option of the inferior man is to throw money at something. I bought the bed, showed it to Anne and the pooch. It terrified me a little bit how much the pooch loved it. She knew instantly what it was and what it meant. It was love. It was the diamond necklace. And she started running around the apartment like a maniac. Coco was extremely curious, too. But she didn't get what the excitement was about. It just appeared to be another horizontal space that would be slept on. My heart melted as Pooch jumped into the bed, and then out of the bed, and then back in the bed, then out of the bed, and then she ran in a circle and then jumped back in the bed again, and she looked at me with admiration and with love. I felt like a sugar daddy with a cheerleader. That night, Anne and I snuggled into the bed. She rested her head on my shoulder, and as I was drifting off, I felt paws jump on the bed. Heavy little pooch feet started walking across our bodies, and she plopped in between us. And then she started the pooch wiggle that was her A move in getting us to have a little room in the middle of the bed. I didn't move, maybe for a half second, but it was a half second too long. Anne jumped out of the bed and began an impassioned discussion with the pooch. Okay, that's what you want? You can have him. I'm done. Anne got out of the bed in a fury. I said, Anne, Anne, come back. She said, no, you made your choice. We had this conversation this morning, and now you're just doing the same thing. You love her. You take her. With that, Anne crawled into the dog bed. I go, Anne? She curled up into a ball and said, oh, this is nice. Pooch groaned like she'd just been stabbed with a spike. She jumped off of the futon and ran over to the dog bed. Anne never looked up but settled in even more, and the pooch whimpered. Anne responded, no, 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 no. I give up. He's yours. I said, Anne, get out of the dog bed. Pooch looked back at me and started wailing. My advocacy was ineffective. Anne continued, no, you both made your choices. I'm just the poor girl in the dog bed. Pooch, you have your choice. Stephen? or the dog bed. You can't have both. The pooch howled and jumped into the dog bed with Anne. Anne crawled out and back into bed with me. The pooch was thrilled. She circled and settled into her new abode. Coco, who remained confused as to what all the fuss was about, jumped into the dog bed with the pooch, and the two of them snuggled down together and went to sleep. The pooch never came into our bed uninvited again. And if she did make a move toward the center of the futon... All Anne would have to do is make a move toward the dog bed. And there was our new template. There never would have been a conclusion if Anne did not rise above my certainty and see the reality of the situation. And it also helped that she just happened to be a size zero.
that year, I got one of the greatest Christmas presents of all time. I found out I was going to be in Alan Parker's new film, Mississippi Burning, and I would be heading for Jackson in January to start shooting. However, I also heard through the grapevine Beth was going to be in Jackson visiting her family. But I was a different person now. I had a new home, and I had a new life. I occasionally fished and smoked cigarettes. I felt my certainty crumbling. In times of chaos, we turned to dreams for guidance. So, I put on my virtual reality helmet. I set the controls to brand new day. And I declared to the world at large, let the games begin. That was Virtual Reality, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, I think we have some exciting news or potential future news for people listening I to the podcast. I think we do. I have just found out that iTunes has agreed to digitize Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. And that what that means is in the next week or two, if you go to the movie section under documentary, you will be able to directly download the film of Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party and see it when it, immediately. Uh, no waiting for Netflix. Now, let me explain that it will be just the movie. It won't be the hour and a half extras and, and all that stuff. If you want a signed copy, if you want to see the movie and all the extras, still contact stbpmovie.com and we'll send the DVD to you. But if you need, if you're listening to these stories and want a quick fix, a birthday party, you in the next week or two, you will be able to immediately have that fix satisfied. Excellent. Well, go to iTunes and just search for Stephen Tobolowsky. I think you'll be able to find it that way as well. Terrific. The, uh, the, the movie that inspired this podcast. Yes. Um, so if you like the podcast, I, I think there's a very, very good chance that you will like Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. Again, iTunes and stbpmovie.com. Stephen, if people want to write to you, how can they do that? Uh, they can write to me at stephentobolowski at gmail.com, and that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y at gmail.com. And I'm also at twitter.com slash Tobolowski and facebook.com Stephen Tobolowski. Facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowski. Yes, the slash. Got to put the slash in. All right. Uh, in case you're interested in more of my work, you can find me at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S-K-Y. And at facebook.com slash Chen David. You can also find the other podcast I host at slashfilmcast.com. And of course, we always want to give a big shout out to slashfilm.com, the film blog that makes all of this possible and uh, really appreciate them hosting the show. So guys, thank you guys for tuning in to this week's episode of The Tobolowsky Files. Take it easy and have a great week. Bye-bye.